One of the things you hear all the time at Second Story is that stories don't exist in a vacuum. So in celebration of Second Story's season kickoff, which is coming up on August 26th, we're releasing some episodes of the podcast that play with and examine that idea. Because in some ways, the format of a podcast does create a kind of artificial vacuum. In a special extended episode, Second Story is proud to present Sadaf Ferdowsi. A perfect Iranian daughter is hard to come by, especially in the United States. When Iranian parents get together, they have this ritual devoted to bemoaning how America has changed their children. Our girls are too selfish to marry and have children, and they're almost 40. I'm 27. They are too lazy to learn how to cook a proper gourmet sabzi. If you're like me, you'd probably roll your eyes and fruitlessly try to point out that it was their choice to move to America and not mine because, like, I didn't exist back then. So how could they not expect some differences? And, more importantly, there's no point in learning how to make gourmet sabzi because it's disgusting. But then my dad was diagnosed with a central tremor, a neurological disorder that sends an abnormal number of electrical currents to the thalamus deep inside his brain. This causes tremors in his hands and legs, slow and slurred speech, and problems with balance. His brother had died from another neurological disorder a year ago, and his three daughters had dropped everything to be by his side. I knew it would be hard to see my father, who had once been an able-bodied man, transition more and more into a state of losing control of his body. But he and my mother had divorced years ago, and my sister Sarah moved to California. I didn't want him to be alone. I wanted him to have what his brother had. Last May, I took the Amtrak from Chicago back to my old home in Michigan. As the scenery shifted from cityscapes and smokestacks to small houses and farmland, I thought I would be more than capable of helping him with the big stuff, like selling the house before he retires, organizing garage sales, finding his post-retirement dream home, and also the small everyday things like cooking, cleaning, driving, grading his exams, and everything else in between. It didn't matter that I was exposed to not just one, but all three waves of feminism. I would slide into this new domestic role gracefully because there was a perfect Iranian daughter deep down in my roots, just waiting to blossom and bloom. Last Christmas, my dad booked a trip to visit several towns in California where he might like to retire. One morning, I heard something of a whisper yell from the bathroom. Sadaf! Sadaf! I was sleeping on my sister's god-awful, uncomfortable couch, so I was a little pissed that my dad was calling for me, waking me up, but I figured maybe he was out of toilet paper or something. I opened the door and froze. My dad had fallen in the shower and couldn't get up. His balance had been bad for five years now, but this was the first time he had fallen without being able to pick himself up. I tried lifting him, but I couldn't. I tried pushing him upright against the shower's back wall, but he was shaking so bad that I couldn't get him to budge. A couple moments later, Sara came in, stepped into the tub, and picked him straight up. Even though she is five years younger than me, she was much stronger than me, physically and emotionally, during this morning that left me terrified. For the rest of the trip, I felt guilt and shame over my uselessness. They coursed through my veins, my arteries, traveling through my limbs, my brain, my heart. I had shown my dad, my sister, and myself that I was far from being a perfect Iranian daughter. This was one small crisis, and I had proven myself incapable. I consoled myself that when we returned to Michigan, I would be better, try harder. 
On days I work 9 to 5, dinner is already one hour late. Dad likes to eat at 4, so as soon as I get home, it's a mad dash to take out the dog, warm up the food, chop veggies for a salad, and get him his favorite drink. Cranberry juice mixed with ginger ale, and don't forget the straw. When I used to live in Chicago, after coming home from work or school, I liked to do absolutely nothing for 10 minutes or so. I needed, for a moment, that liminal zone where my public self reverts back to my private one. But here, all myself stack up on each other, clanging and clamoring for space. I usually bake chicken, but one evening in January, I tried cooking it on the stove. I know that's probably second nature to many people, but you have to realize that before this year, I barely cooked anything before in my life. In college, my brand of feminism was to quote Beauvoir and resist all things domestic. I battled the patriarchy by ordering takeout. Since then, my feminism has evolved to include feeding myself properly, but learning how was going slow. I was still thinking about work, wondering if I had done a bad job explaining the present progressive tense to an ESL student when I heard the chicken sizzling at an alarming volume. There was also quite an alarming smell. I asked my dad if he could come and check. You should know what you're doing, he said. I should? I wasn't trained in cooking. I had been trained in reading Judith Butler so that I could ruin dates by averring that all gender performances are failed performances. But Judith Butler couldn't help me now. I burnt the chicken and there was no backup for dinner. Dad opened the kitchen door and I watched the pan shake in his hands as he placed it on the back steps, on the snow I hadn't shoveled yet. I don't know what it was about this gesture. Maybe it was his tremors, the cold air swooshing into the house, the never-ending pile of snow, along with the never-ending pile of dishes waiting for me on this dark winter night. But it made me cry and cry and cry. Shut up, my dad said. Just shut up. I can cry if I want, I wailed. Then go cry in your room. That stunned me. It made me feel like the past nine months I had spent taking care of him didn't matter. I tried everything I could do to help him, and he couldn't even give me some small amount of comfort. Like I was back in high school again, I ran upstairs to my room and didn't speak a word to him the rest of the night. There wasn't a perfect Iranian daughter just waiting to blossom and bloom. It was just me, trying to live under the almighty shadow of essential tremor. There are a lot of books out there on motherhood and fatherhood, childhood and adulthood. They explain how mothers should mother and how fathers father children and how parents parent. But nothing really exists on daughterhood. What does it mean to be a daughter? And how do I do this daughtering? If we take Judith Butler's discussion on gender performativity and apply it here, we'll see that even being a daughter, performing as a perfect Iranian daughter, is always already performing a failure. But if I'm already failing at this performance of daughterhood, does this mean I'm double failing? Is trying to navigate a tension aggravating this failure? On one hand, I want to grow up and be my own independent person, but on the other, I understand the importance of remaining daddy's little girl, especially because he's sick and needs help. But before my dad got sick, my dad had a terrible temper and his rage was inconsistent. Growing up, I felt that my feelings never mattered, only my GPA did. If I got even one thing wrong on a spelling test or a math test, sometimes he would suddenly reply, that's how you learn. But other times he'd just yell, you should have studied more. Why didn't you study more? Maybe this comes along with being a child of immigrants, or maybe it's just a thing in my family. But so much of my parents' validation as transplants from their old home to their new one stemmed from the accomplishments of their children. 
As a result, I strove for perfection, and it wasn't just because I feared my father's raised voice, but because I genuinely wanted to make my parents proud. It's like, hey, we assimilated, but also we excelled. It wasn't just school. If I sounded impolite on the phone or didn't say thank you or hello or didn't offer to help with anything, if I watched too much TV or didn't brush my teeth the right way, were also reasons that angered him. But it would only be after he'd get angry that I would realize I had done something wrong. I was constantly anxious about making mistakes because I never knew what would or would not set him off. As a child, I figured this was normal. I had felt I couldn't defend myself or call my parents out on behavior I thought was unfair because it was one small thing out of a million things they had sacrificed or done right. But now that I'm older and living back home, forgotten resentments resurface. I oscillate between forgiving and unforgiving the past. Life is full of little ironies. My father's hands and his voice were the cause of much of my pain, but also naturally where I turned for comfort. Years later, his hands and his voice don't work anymore, at least not like they used to. So in a way, it's like he's another person. But I feel just the same, as if I haven't grown at all. It's the middle of March, and Dad and I spend an entire day in the hospital. He needed surgery on his foot, which will hopefully improve his balance. It's nearly impossible to walk with this giant cast, and he's really, really out of it because of the anesthesia. After the 45-minute drive home, I struggle to get him up the back steps into the house, and I try not to think about the remaining six weeks of recovery time that is stretching before us. An image of my uncle's three daughters, who had dropped everything to be by his side, flits into my mind, and I shake it away. There is no point in comparing their successful daughtering with my struggling right now. Getting up the steps is exhausting for him, but we make it to the living room where I help him change into his pajamas. He no longer has control of his body, so it's like dressing a life-size doll that looks like your dad. I pull his arms through the sleeve of his shirt and button it up. That's easy. The pants are difficult. I roll the pant legs up the way I saw the nurse do it, so his pants are up to his mid-thigh. The final step is lifting him up so I can tug the fabric just one, one more time to his waist. His body feels extra heavy from the drugs in the cast. I can't lift him up. It feels like Christmas all over again. Only my sister isn't here to help. I'm on my own. I put my hands under each of his armpits and I heave and heave and heave. Am I hurting you, Dad? I keep asking, but he's not answering. He's only wheezing. I feel the almighty weight of my uselessness, my imperfection. I feel guilt and shame, like tendrils snaking through my veins and arteries to my limbs, my brain. But then my heart goes, no, no more guilt, no more shame. I pull a chair from the dining table to his armchair. I put one of my knees on the seat of the chair like a weight and then position his hands on the back of it. Like a lever, I'm able to hoist him up and his pants go on. The rest of the evening is one of the best we've had. Color slowly comes back into his cheeks and he's able to speak in full sentences again. He eats two bowls of stew I had made in the crock pot, no more stove tops for me, and he goes to bed early. As I'm cleaning up a little, I think about how I had never thought of my dad as the perfect father but I had never once thought of him as an imperfect one either. Even though I don't agree with all of his parenting practices now that I'm an adult, I can still see how everything he had done had been for my sister and me. He was always taking care of us and never took a moment for himself, for his public self to revert back to his private one. I think that maybe I should abandon the desire to be a perfect Iranian daughter and try more sincerely to be myself, or at least figure out who that is. 
If all our performances are failed performances, I'd rather fail as myself, as opposed to some imaginary figure I'm trying to constrain myself into becoming. The writer Anais Nin said it best. The day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. So as we were saying earlier, there is a kind of vacuum that a podcast creates where as opposed to our live performances, when there's many stories um, that approach a topic from a variety of ways and you can talk to the tellers about their lives outside of the stories, um, that's especially why I wanted to chat with you today to break down the vacuum around the story and kind of talk about your experience both living it and telling it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of hard with um, stories because they kind of capture a moment in time. But then relationships, they're always changing, they're always adapting, they're always evolving. And um, so that was kind of the challenge with this one, because I knew like this was only going to, it covered, um, I think, like September to March of the year. And um, so I knew that, you know, it was just capturing this one discrete time, even though it wouldn't capture the full, like the full spectrum of that relationship. And looking back on the, I haven't read this story since March and reading it again, like some things have changed for me and some things have stayed the same. So it was actually really interesting that you brought up that it's a vacuum because the moment, I think a story does capture like a moment, but then we also have to recognize and acknowledge. And that's what's beautiful about storytelling is like it captures one thing, but we know like as writers and as performers and as listeners that things are always like subject to change. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I love that idea, and it also just made me think of, like, the word vacuum, where it kind of feels like it's a time capsule that you've buried, mm-hmm. and you, like, refound it, and you're like, oh, I forgot I felt that way, mm-hmm. or something like that. I think that's really interesting. I also think that since all second story stories are true personal stories, it's kind of a different creative process, because you mm-hmm. are also going through the experience, and then you have to kind of contextualize it for yourself right. before rewriting the narrative in a way that makes sense and has a beginning middle and end and like fits with conventions of storytelling could you talk a little bit about your process with this story yeah sure and I just want to um before I like begin I just want to say thank you to second story for the opportunity to tell this story um because you know while I'm I'm usually a journaler I like to like write in my journal or my diary about things every day but during this time I really couldn't because like part of me like didn't want to remember or reflect or really think about what was going on because it was like hard for me to accept or it was hard for me to just like I didn't want to deal with it even though I was like functioning um so yeah so just thanks to second story for really giving me the opportunity to really reflect and think about my relationship with my dad and my relationship to writing and so my process in the beginning so second story is really cool it has that curation process where you're working over multiple drafts and I was tinkering with something totally different I was trying to like I was doing just like kind of what I think is, like, my safe stuff, like, I, oh, like, oh, identity, oh, growing up in rural Michigan, oh, I'm, like, who am I, you know, that kind of stuff, but then for this one, so I was tinkering with drafts, and they weren't working out, and then um, the day after I took them to the hospital, I, like, wrote this in, like, eight hours, like, it was, I was very motivated to get it all down on paper, Um, and Aimee was our curator, and Liz was our director, Liz Rice was our director, and they really gave me good feedback, which I think. So it was this process of just getting it all out and then um, Liz and Aimee really helping me um, with the final touches and polishing. 
I love the idea that it's like a collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Like this is such a story about your personal life. Um, I didn't realize that it was such a like a creation of a community almost. And I love that idea. And I also think it rings very authentic and perhaps that has something to do with it. Um, I kind of wanted to know how you keep your sense of humor so alive in this story mm. because your voice shines through brilliantly, but it's such a serious kind of hard topic. Mm, I think for me, just um, I always try to, I think it was like humor. It's just funny because I don't think I'm very funny. So thank you for saying I'm funny. Um, I I think, but like for me, like, you know, I think um, humor has oftentimes been kind of a, not like a survival tactic because I've never been in like a dangerous situation where I've had to survive. But it's just been a way to just lessen pain or to lessen suffering or to reevaluate that suffering from kind of a lighter perspective and so I wanted because I didn't and also I you know you think about your audience like you try not to think about your audience but then you do also still have to think about your audience and you don't want it to be doom and gloom where I'm like crying on stage about like how like this is so hard for me I wanted it to be funny and like light-hearted because you know it is kind of like I don't know not that like chronic illness is funny but it's funny like the things that end up happening sometimes when you're not able-bodied or when you're trying to take care of someone that like doesn't want help and so I really tried to insert humor where I could Mm -hmm. and to kind of diffuse kind of um, hard situations because that's what my family has just always done we always try to find some funny aspect to a shitty situation (laughs) so speaking of authenticity and performance I love your mention of Judith Butler the performativity theory in this case um, the idea of performativity kind of runs through the story in a really cool way with you repeating the all gender performances are failed performances line. And it's kind of, I think I saw it as kind of a warning to yourself that however you try to fill the role of perfect daughter or perfect Iranian daughter, it's always doomed. And I was wondering how you saw that line and if you saw it as related to performance or as related to your, related to your identity as an Iranian daughter or mm-hmm. um, really how it operated to you. Okay, um, so for what uh, what I will say is um, before I read Judith Butler, um, I read this theorist called Ir- Iris Marion Young, and she has this thing on how um, we have construction material all around us. She was a political science theorist, and we're, she was like looking at the construction material of public space versus private space, um, kind of exploring questions like that. And so I think for me, like my construction material, like how I where do we even come up with what our performances should even be? How do we even know, you know, if we're on the right track with what we're supposed to be performing? And so a lot of that, it, like a lot of that construction material does come from culture. And so I was in this um, unique position where I, there was this, you know, like Michigan culture, everyone's kind of like folksy and nice and, you know, you know, that like Midwest attitude, attitude. that was construction material. But then I also had this other private construction material on, you know, um, and like also just like looking at my cousins and other family uh, members in Iran and kind of their construction material. How 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 are their households organized? How how do they speak to their parents? Like you know how how like how do they do things there? What is their construction material available to them for them to do their performances? And so I was kind of 
So like I had both. And so a lot of it was about trying to come up with a performance with the construction material that I had. But then at the same time, knowing like if when you t- bring back Judith Butler, that all of these performances are still failed performances. And so what do you do with that? Okay, thank you so much to Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Amanda Delheimer, and this This is the Second Second Story Podcast.